This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. Today, I am once again joined by my friend and colleague, leadership development and organizational design expert, executive coach, podcaster, and soon-to-be author, Lisa Schmidt. Lisa Schmidt, thank you for joining me today. I am thrilled to be back with you, Deborah. Welcome to the work revolution. You're a fellow revolutionary now, I think, right? Absolutely. And I, uh, <laughs> I I don't have a green beret, but I believe I do have a leather one somewhere. A leather one. Oh, super cool. I don't have a beret either. I have to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I, I, I'm sort of saying that tongue in cheek because I was recently listening to an episode of your pod- podcast, which we'll get to in a sec, because I want you to tell us a little bit about it and, and what brought you to, to do it. Um, and you and your partner in the podcast brought up this idea of, of, you know, maybe we're in the time of sort of a revolutionary time. There's some revolutionary change perhaps needed or coming. And I thought, oh, cool. We're on the same page. So um, let's start with that. You've got, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Let's start with that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Deborah. And by the way, I'm thrilled to be having this conversation with you around revolution, around change, because I completely agree with you. There's so many things that we've been doing in the workplace and organizations and our teams and our professional lives that hasn't been deeply fulfilling and in fact has been damaging to people. And so I really do believe that we we need to change and you and I are part of that conversation. So I'm grateful to be speaking with you about this. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the podcast. So I co-host it with uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Raymond Abdul Rahman. He is a clinical and consulting psychologist based out of Winnipeg. He's Muslim. Uh, he's brown skinned. He was born in Africa. And myself, I'm white. My parents were uh, European, came from Germany after the Second World War. I was born in northern Quebec in a town that no longer exists. It was a mining town. And when the mine dried up, the town was bulldozed. So on a current day map of Canada, you can't find the place where I was born. Um, And uh, I uh, came from initially a working class, uh, then to middle class background. And as Raymond and I were working together and got to know each other, we we were very... um, we, We both noticed, interestingly, how different we were in terms of our backgrounds. And I work in organizational development and in executive coaching and yet how similar we were as people. And so Mm -hmm. the birth of our podcast was really around how do you have conversations about difference that get you to a place of similarity? Mm -hmm. What I mean by that more specifically is how do we, each of us go from thinking in terms of us and them to a bigger us that includes more of us. And so the podcast is called the Different People Podcast. We're at www.differentpeople.ca. And essentially what we do is that we have conversations that move backroom discussions between people who are similar out into the open. Mm Because we really believe that learning to have difficult conversations about race and about difference is the starting point around change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so hard to have. <clears throat> I, I find that even with um, 
even people with close in your life, right? Like even your family members and for sure the people you work with. I think there there's a, so many obstacles in the work environment around having those types of conversations. I mean, if we can't even have them, you know, a lot of people struggle to have them in their marriages and in their friendships and with their family members. So um, having them at work would be even even more challenging, right? There's There's the hierarchical structure and there's the political environment. There's all these considerations when we're in a work environment about how honest do I really feel I can be? How much of my, of my true thoughts do I want to divulge here? Because it might be somewhat limiting. Uh, I might be somewhat shamed or shut down. So there's a lot to consider um, when, in terms of people's comfort around really sharing and leaning into those difficult conversations. So you started the podcast, I think it was in February. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The end of February. Yeah. And then over the course of this summer, we had a number of really tragic, um, tragic, um, I don't know what to call them, circumstances, events, tragic events. Um, How did that, how did that impact your you're thinking about the podcast and um, the importance of what you were doing or just, I don't know, like, how did that affect you? It affected me. Yeah. Um, when we started the podcast, this was before the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, others in Canada, Chantal Moore. We started the podcast because Raymond and I were both very interested in what it takes to make real change from his background as a psychologist, personal and individual change, and from my lens, organizational team, uh, interactive relational change. And it did have at the start, um, I guess there I wouldn't say there was distance in it, but, you know, we kind of were, this was something new. Neither one of us has a background in podcasting uh, or in having these kinds of conversations publicly. But at first it was a little bit about who we each were and why we were drawn to this topic. When the events unfolded as they did in the United States and in Canada, it became it became a different kind of wake-up call to me personally Because when we talk about white supremacy, white fragility, internalized racism, these to me were all concepts of the extremes. Because when I heard white supremacy, I imagined, you know, the white pointy hats. I imagined the, you know, the terrible history of um, discrimination and exclusion of indigenous people and people, you know, black people and slavery. To me, when I heard about white supremacy, like I thought of white supremacists and what I learned over the course of the broader conversation in society and in my conversations with Raymond on the podcast, and we did have a few guests as well. I learned that there's kind of capital uh, W white supremacy in the ways that I've just described, but there's also this idea in society that is quite pervasive that the current ways that we do things are based on white European culture and that they're somehow better. And you know, when we talk about systemic, I'll just give you a very small example. Our culture in Canada and many other places, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate things based on Christian traditions. And we see 
for people who come from different communities, different religions, different cultures, that it has to be a special ask for them to be able to take time off for the holidays and celebrations that they want to have. And so this is an example about how a white or a European centric culture is embedded. I don't have to ask for Christmas off. Mm-hmm. I don't have to ask for Easter off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one example. Another example is when you hear of expressions such as this person is non-white or non-Indigenous, um, or sorry, non-white or um, uh, not part of the mainstream culture, or what's the word, visible minority. That's what right. I'm looking for. Yeah, I don't, I don't have to describe my identity as being non-Black, non-Indigenous, visible major- majority, mm-hmm. European-centric uh I, I, I just, I'm just white. I don't even have to tell all the stories and, and identify because again, we're, we consider the representation that I have as a white person to just be the standard and everyone else is different against that standard. Mm-hmm. And when I started to really understand the impact of that on people and what inclusive inclusion and belonging really meant in our society, it became a more personal journey of my own investigating my own ignorance and complicity into mm-hmm. systems I wasn't even aware that I was a part of. Yeah. And I think that this um, this past summer, I mean, I know for me, it was a huge awakening too. Um, I don't think I could have expressed it nearly as eloquently as you have. I, I would have fumbled through ideas that were similar. But certainly I... I I, I see what you're saying and I, and I can I can remember some of the the reactions that I that I had um, and 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 conversations I felt I needed to have at that point with my children as well. And I began to imagine myself as, you know, what if we were a black family? What if my two teenage sons were black? What would that mean for the conversations I'd I would have probably, I would have already been having with them, you know, um, but certainly, you know, I, I, I would just began to imagine, not that I hadn't ever imagined it, I had imagined it. I mean, I, it's not like I'd ever watched the news and I wasn't aware that these types of things happened, but um, it just sank in in a different way than it ever had before. And I also started to see more of this idea of systemically things that that were going on and that small d, small w rather, small d, small w white supremacy. Um and here's here's something that that I've come to draw as a uh, this might seem like a bit of a leap. I don't know. You you tell me if you think it's too too out there. But when we talk about unconscious biases, right? Like just stuff that's in in your thinking and your in your belief system that you're not a bad person. You don't even know that it's there because for the most part, you're going about your life and you're not really challenged um, about it. So I don't know, one day I was talking to someone and I realized, wait a minute, I have a bias that I have had my, I had most of my my life. And I'm going to divulge what it is, and it's going to seem a little silly perhaps, but I think it's just an example of, you know, based on our upbringing, our surroundings, like we just get stuff in our belief systems. So when I was a kid growing up, my dad 
Um, and in fact, most all of the men in my family were amazingly handy people. My, I come from, my dad was a plumber uh, by trade, but he was also someone who could just fix anything, figure anything out, super problem solver, you know, would would come home with some like like a a lawnmower that he'd found somewhere and tune it up and fix it up and and get it working or build a fence and a deck and renovate the bathroom and just do everything on his own and a lot of the men in my family were like this so growing up i assumed all men were like this this is just a bias i grew up with right and so it wasn't until, you know, into my adulthood and I was married and I started to realize, wait a minute, um, you know, not all dudes are handy and not all of them are even remotely interested in doing some of these things. And so, it, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but you know how you can see how things get into your belief system just because of your exposure and your upbringing and sometimes limited exposure, right? I don't know. Does that sound crazy? No, it doesn't. Because as you were talking, I I, I thought, you know, our fathers are probably part of the same uh, club of do it all yourself. But my interesting assumption that I unconsciously held was that you don't need to hire anybody to do anything. You have to know how to do it all yourself. Yes. So, you know, I remember um, times in my life where a lamp wouldn't work. I would take the lamp apart to figure out how to fix it. Now, did I know what I was doing? No, but it never occurred to me that I could find somebody to help me fix or do something because the implicit or the, the, the bias that was in me is that you can figure this out yourself and you don't need help. It was a, a, an over-reliance on my independence because my that's how that was the value in my family. And an underappreciation for relying on far better skill sets in many domains that uh, that I didn't have that other people did. So what I found really interesting about your example and my example is similar types of fathers, but different unconscious beliefs that stemmed from it. Yeah. What I learned was just to call my dad for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think what you got out of it is probably better, actually. Like, you know, just try to figure it out yourself at least. But I did, you know, yeah, I mean, for the, it wasn't until I bought, you know, my husband and I bought our second house that I ever hired someone, for example, to paint or do anything. Like, no, everywhere I went, I painted myself. I did whatever I could myself, for sure. Like, that wasn't something you would hire someone to do. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, and then I layer in my own version of feminism into this, which is, you know, when you think of that, we can do it, right? The, yes. the posters during the war of the yeah. munitions uh, workers, the women who worked in the munitions factories, like there is a part of it is like, I can do this, you know, mm -hmm. and can I do it well? Probably not, but I can definitely at least do it. And so I think there was in all of this for me, a desire to express my own sense of uh, not needing to be helped. Yeah. Because, you know, I didn't want to be, and, and this, I, I almost feel weird saying it, but I didn't want to ever want to be that damsel in distress where I needed somebody to come and help me do something. I, I prided myself 
to mixed results <laughs> on uh, being able to figure things out on my own. Yeah. Such a great quality to have though. Some people just have it more than others. You know, that willing, and if, especially people are really curious, you know, they just get, they just go down a path and get absorbed in it. And they love, they love figuring stuff out. I'm the type of person who's not like that. (laughs) (laughs) I like the type of person who goes, this computer is not working. Let's get a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting though. And and they're part of the reason why I, I, I share that story is that I think, I think what you're experimenting with in your podcast and some of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about is when you talk about white supremacy, man, a lot of people are going to get their back up, eh? Like a lot of people are going to get defensive. Like they immediately will go to a place of real defensiveness because I get part, I, I think it's partly, it's because, well, that's not me. It's not about me. So what do you want me, individual me to do about it? And so, and they don't, it's not readily obvious how they're part of that system. And so there's really this like, you know, and I think that's part of what's so nice about your podcast is trying to make it safe for people to to be able to lean into that a little bit and, um, and to start to, to hopefully see some things a little differently. I don't know, but it's going to be tough in organizations, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, just to pick up on what you said there, I was incredibly defensive when Raymond broached the subject with me around how I had benefited from white supremacy because I had this idea in my head that, um, and this comes from my cultural upbringing. So I grew up with German parents uh, going to English schools just outside of Montreal. And I felt like an outsider my entire uh, childhood. First of all, my parents were immigrants and they spoke German at home. Second of all, this was after, uh, well, around the time of uh, the election of the Parti Québécois, 1976 to power in Quebec and the provincial uh, political sphere. And a huge pride that had come out of the late 60s in Quebec around French Canadians finding their own identity. And so I felt different for being a child of an immigrant. I felt different for not being French Canadian and not speaking French, which I learned. I went to French high school. And this very strong sense of exclusion, uh, my entire, up until my early 20s, when I eventually left Montreal, because I was fielding a lot of comments from people if I was out in public speaking English, I would be told to speak French. That's our, you know, la langue in, uh, in Quebec. And so I thought because of my experience of being the other in the cultural context I grew up in, that I didn't have a ton of work to do around understanding belonging and inclusion because I had been, I felt on the receiving end. And when Raymond said to me at first, like you've benefited from white supremacy, I really wanted to cling to this idea that I too am an an outsider. And what Raymond very patiently explained to me is like, yes, all of those things happen to you and are valid yet you didn't have in addition to that, the color of your skin being yet another reason for people to find reasons to exclude you, dismiss you, or ignore you. And that was a really 
powerful moment for me to understand that I didn't have to erase any of the difficulties that I had in my life. I just didn't have the same difficulties and the more trenchant and painful racist uh, incidents in my life that people of color have experienced. And I mean, just to add another point to this, um, there are issues around socioeconomic status that come with race, right? I mean, we know that women make less money than men generally, but women of color make less money than white women. And also our health outcomes. If you look at what's been happening with COVID over the last eight months, Indigenous people, people of color don't have uh, very positive outcomes as compared to white populations. So this literally is a matter of life and death for people. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to deny that, to pretend this doesn't exist, is, is willful at this stage. There are just so many ways we can learn about how white people benefit from the structures in society that to not see that this is in fact true is to make a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think um, economic status, um, privilege, I guess we call it, I mean, there's white privilege, but there's just privilege from being like your the way, you know, uh, born into some money, maybe being able to go to private school and all of these things layer on, I think to not really realizing that, Hey, you're not living in the real world completely, you know, compared to, to, to the rest of, to the rest of us, you know, or to other people, let's say. And so, and, you know, it kind of makes it, um, I don't know, that's, that's sort of how I, it's partly, it's partly how I view someone like a Donald Trump in a way, you know, I look at someone like that and I think, well, you know, you've, you grew up wealthy, um, never really had to earn anything. Uh, we're kind of born into a role of already being the boss of everything. Never, So we're never really challenged, always told you were right. And so look how far someone can get on the belief that they're entitled to it. Because, just because, I don't know why, just because I'm who I am, I'm entitled to it all. And nobody gets in the way, right? So, or gets in the way enough, let's say. And so with, with limited competency, limited ex relevant experience, I mean, you know, it's fair to say that the guy wasn't even a successful businessman or successful at really anything. So. I just bring that up as an example of someone who yet look how far that person could get. Mm -hmm. You know, that expression, I might not get it exactly right, but it's, you know, you're, um, you're on home plate mm -hmm. <laughs> at baseball analogy. And yeah. you, you're, you think it's that you're there because you hit a home run, but in fact you were born there. You didn't have to do yeah. anything to right. get to home plate. Right. Right. And, I mean, that's, this is the insidious thing about bias and privilege and our perspectives on the world is that, you know, to use another, I, I never, I never quite get these things right, but you know, if you're a fish, you don't see water, you know, 
Mm-hmm. If you're if you're living in a world in which you don't have to see or the nothing in your life requires you to experience anything different, you're not apt unless you make a conscious choice. You're not apt to notice the privilege that you have. You're not apt to notice like again another example from my life. You know, my father worked really hard. He, you know, uh, similar to your father, he worked in a trade. He was trained as an electrician. And it was a foregone conclusion that his three kids were going to go to university. That was just like, you know, whether or not I had a say in it, I didn't know it at the time, but it was very, very important in my family's values that I attend university. Now, years later, I see this as what an immense privilege that Mm -hmm. I had that my parents made the choices and the sacrifices for me to do that. I didn't have to go into debt. I didn't have to work five jobs just to keep it all together. I didn't have to live with 16 roommates in a dilapidated house. Like when I look at some of the things that people, you know, in the past and today have had to do, and again, looking at people of color who had Mm -hmm. to push through so many barriers just to get into a school, let alone show their capability. Mm -hmm. I had, I had, I was born into a, a time and a place in which, you know, even, the 70s, you know, emerging feminism, it was no longer I did not have a choice of, you know, or my my choices, sorry, weren't limited to you can be a teacher, or you could be a nurse, or you could be a stewardess, we now call them flight attendants, or you could get married and be a homemaker, there was a much wider world available to me. And my aspiration is that everybody has these types of opportunities. And I want to be a part of a world that helps create that. I would mm-hmm. rather, I would rather share my privilege and what I have to help other people. I don't feel a sense of protectiveness around what I have. I feel gratitude and I do sense my privilege. And where and when I can step into ways of, of helping, that's what I'm trying to do. And in essence, I think that's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast mm-hmm. with Raymond was to be able to role model the vulnerability it takes to have these difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, because having conversations about race is, can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You just reminded me of a couple of things. Um, and, you know, I use my, cause I'm a white woman and I don't, I, I and and I think it's natural to draw on your own experiences to try to relate to other people. And so the way I can relate best is, you know, being a woman and knowing what it like it's like at times to feel like um, you know, I have ex- additional obstacles or I've had additional obstacles, uh, perhaps, um, or that my certain aspects of my, you know, um, way of living and the way I think I deserve to be in the world is potentially under threat because of political leanings of, you know, whatever it is in our society, or that I'm sometimes less safe, you know, things like that. So as a, and just, just looking at the numbers of, you know, women in leadership, women in certain fields, obviously the numbers bear out that we are not at all equally represented. And I have to say, um, you know, I, I didn't, it came as a surprise to me <laughs> that that happened, like naively as a, as a, when I would, when I was sort of, you know, a teenage girl, I, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be like that. I just thought, oh, it'll all be fine. So, but it, here's, here's an interesting story. So 
I remember the moment I was told that, anyway, I'll get to spoil the story. So I'm going to start from the beginning. So I remember being in high school history class and uh, we were talking about minority groups. We were talking about um, discrimination and the history teacher asked our class, well, who is the, what is the biggest minority group? And people are sort of reluctantly like putting up their hands slowly, like uh, uh, black people, I don't know. And then like, nope. And then somebody else like, I don't know, like Chinese people, like we just didn't. So we're going through like all the things we can think of. Who is the biggest minority group? And nobody got it. And then finally he said, women. And I just remember thinking, what? What are you talking about? Like, I had no fucking clue what this guy was talking about because mm-hmm. that hadn't been my experience, or at least I didn't know it had been my experience. I didn't realize it. And um, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting how we kind of come to these realizations. And then it wasn't, you know, as I've gone through adulthood, of course, I see things differently. Um, so what are your thoughts on... Because you just said, okay, I thought, you know, I grew up with some limitations and I was, you know, whatever I, I thought I was left out. And, you know, I'm I'm related, I'm trying to relate based on my experience as a woman. Like, does that make it relatable, do you think? Or should women just, you know, stop talking about that stuff? I think that a sense of empathy is really important. And empathy often comes from being able to relate to someone's experience. Where we get into trouble is assuming that our experience is equivalent. Mm -hmm. So I might have a feeling of feeling left out or not belonging or being excluded or being judged, but I can never know what that's like to experience that as a person of color, as a black woman, as an indigenous child, as, so there's a bridge, right? I think there's a bridge of relatability, but there's, there's, I don't think you can extrapolate beyond that would, would be my sense. Well, what's your sense as, as, as you think about this? I think it opens a crack. I think it, I think you're right. I think, I think you can't presume to, to know what other people's experiences are or to, to know what's, what, you know, the struggles that they've had. Um, but I think, I think for a lot of women, it, it, it opens, there's a little crack there and there's a little bit of light that comes in. And I think that's what makes it a little harder maybe for white men, you know, who don't even have that much of a crack to be able to relate. Listen, here's, here's an example that to me uh, speaks volumes around, um, differences and and ability or not to relate. There was, um, I was reading about this, um, this course that was about uh, things that people wanted to learn in order to feel more confident in the world and to feel safer in the world. And the answers from men and from women were completely different. And the one place that was really interesting was when they asked men and women what they did to prepare for a date. So the guy would take a shower and slap on some aftershave and, you know, pick a, get the shirt from the dry cleaner that somebody had ironed and put it on. The woman is letting her friends know where she's going to be, what time she's going to be out, who she's going to be with. Like issues of safety 
are mm-hmm. paramount for her. And of course, you know, and I'm, I'm using a heterosexual example here, but it goes to show the, the thing that is taken for granted for men often in this world. I'm, I guess I'm speaking specifically for white men yeah. or around white men is you don't have to worry that you're, you know, going to be date raped on your, <laughs> right? Like, and I know I'm being a little extreme in saying that, but you don't feel like your safety could be compromised by meeting a new person in a strange place or in a, in a public place. For women, this is something we live with all the time. And what I've noticed, especially, I mean, I, I spend quite a bit of time in, uh, in Northern Ontario where I have a small cottage, is that my male neighbors seem to think it's okay to just wander over to my property when I'm not here and then, you know, send me a message or, you know, hey, I just want to let you know everything looks good on your property. There's the sense that I somehow need to be protected or watched over. I haven't asked for this. In fact, I've made it clear that I'm uncomfortable with people being on my property when I'm not here. But there's this assumption that there's something lacking in me that needs male protection. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, the world can be a dangerous place for women. We don't have to look very far. Even during COVID, rates of domestic violence have spiked uh, in a very terrifying and frightening way. It's brutal. Um, It is brutal. Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, we're, we're, we're caught often in these tensions around these things. And, and this is why my firm belief is regardless of where we are in the world, you know, in terms of our, whether you want to call it your journey towards being, um, more open-minded to dealing with, you know, your inherent sexism or racism conversation and ex- like inner reflection and outer expression of these things is a really powerful way to start shifting these things. So just, you know, you and I being in conversation, like I'm thinking of things that I haven't really thought of yeah. in those ways, just by virtue of, of being in this conversation. So the, you know, you offering this opportunity for me and for others to speak on your podcast actually is part of where we started the revolution that we are hoping to yeah. uh, fan the flames of. That's right. We need change. It's not coming fast enough. And I don't just mean for women. I mean for everybody. Because there's when I when I talk about workplaces, I'm not just I'm not. Just, I, yes, of course, there's issues around diversity and inclusion. Um, there's issues for women. There's issues for a lot of people. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of men who get stuck and depressed at work. Like so. But but it, but it's an important part of it. It's just such an important part that we're all that I think I feel like people are dancing around and they and and don't get me wrong, like it scares me too. Like I know I know that maybe I'm a little you know whatever. I've got more balls than brains, as my family would say. <laughs> but <laughs> ah, she's got more balls than brains. But you know, um, I just. Uh, so I'm putting myself out there a little bit, but it, it makes me feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, another, you just reminded me of another stat. I, I remember seeing recently that, um, Oh, I want to get this right. Um, so uh, a couple of people, men and women were asked, what are they most afraid of uh, from their, like a partner, like if they're in a romantic relationship and the women answered the thing that they were most afraid of was being killed. And men were most afraid of being laughed at. Laughed at. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a remarkable gap between the two. Yeah. That's, and and, and that to me, it. again, speaks to male privilege. 
Exactly. And, and, you know, it's just hard for them to get it because they never had to get it before. They've never had to really see things that way. They don't, they're, they, they don't think they feel as vulnerable as anybody else does. Yeah. And, you know, you know it, and it's tricky, I think, to use even the language of privilege, because as I said earlier, like, you know, privilege doesn't deny that you've had a difficult experience in life, that maybe bad things have happened to you. There have been traumatic experiences, men, women, anyone. But what privilege offers you is that you don't have to live in a world in which you are going to be prevented from living to your fullest capability and to be encouraged and to be safe and to be welcomed. And Mm -hmm. when you live in a place of not acknowledging that you have that privilege, like it's, it's not about saying you're better, that you're something more magical about you. Um, it, it's a fact. It is a proven fact. I don't know how many statistics that, white males in our society benefit from the structures and the systems, whether they're tax systems, whether they are the way organizations work. I mean, you know, you and I talked about this a while ago, there are more men named John in the, you know, the top 500 organizations in, you know, the, oh, the stock exchange, than there are women, more (laughs) men named Peter than there are women. I don't know what the third name is, uh, but this just goes but to it's show. it's a boy's name. It's it totally, you know, it's not, it's not yeah. Joan and it's not Petra, right? Yep. Um, it's not Deb and it's not Lisa. Not Deb, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, yeah, that's, it's so true. I mean, we don't mean to, we're not trying to be assholes to you guys. It's just the way it is, you know? Um, yeah. And I, oh, and I, to jump in Deborah for a second there are many men who do get this like I do not yeah. want to be dismissive of totally men who have made an effort to who've seen it and often they've seen it in their partners or their sisters or their mothers who experience these things and so many many men and there are many men in my life who actually are fierce advocates so I'm, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination in any regard saying that this is all men and all white men. Mm -hmm, I'm talking mm -hmm. about the societal structures. It's the difference I think between talking about white people as individuals Mm -hmm. and whiteness as a code word for having opportunities that might, that are likely to be denied to other people. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you said something earlier and I meant to grab onto it at the time, but, I'm going to come back to it now. Acknowledging that you have certain privilege is fine when you have gratitude. So this is what I'm starting to learn. And this is through a lot of self-reflection, a lot of reading, a lot of, you know, I've started a, a, a meditation practice that I'm dedicated to. I do it every day. Um, it's growing in gratitude because if you have genuine gratitude for all the things in your life that you're so lucky to have, you want to spread that to other people. You want to bring other people into that. And so it's not something to feel bad about. It's something to be thankful for. And, and you started to, you, you mentioned that earlier 
And, and I think that's actually a lot of the secret to getting to that place of acceptance and without, without guilt, without shame, without blame, it's just an acceptance of what is. And if, if, if you're in a place that you've been really privileged, just be grateful for it, like understand mm-hmm. and see how, how fortunate you are. And no one's, you know, it's, you don't have to um, feel bad about it necessarily, you know? Yeah, and I believe Kamala Harris recently said after her, um, my goodness, so grateful that uh, that in the United States there is a woman who is both has um, uh, African and Indian heritage. What a remarkable thing to behold, given mm-hmm. uh, that this is this is a yet another glass ceiling that shattered. But she said something about if you are in a place where you have those things and you can express gratitude for them, your next order of business is to help somebody else achieve yes. that. And I think that's you know where where we sometimes miss our ability to do that is instead of looking at everything that we have and grateful for it, we're looking more at what it is we don't have and striving for that as opposed to helping other people or sharing the the wealth that we have, whether it be in our network and our contacts to support the careers of other people, whether it be to give money to charitable organizations that are doing incredible work to change society for the better. I do think we have a duty of care to what comes after us and to people around us. And I didn't come to that until later in life. I was very much, um, you know, when I think of the way that our school system worked, it was always you have to, you know, work hard and study hard to get the A. It was never work hard and study hard to be able to help other people, right? Mm -hmm. Work hard, study hard to get the promotion. Wasn't work hard, study hard to be able to help other people succeed. Mm -hmm. So that came to me later in my life when I understood that accomplishment has a far broader net, like you can accomplish by helping other people. Mm-hmm. It's not just about what you get for yourself. Yeah, it's a mindset, I think. And yeah, when you, I think with, oh, I lost it. When you have gratitude, um, you're not as led by your ego. And the ego, the that, you know, accumulate more, get more, accomplish more. There's nothing wrong with accomplishing things like, you know, ha- great. I, I want people to be successful and accomplish great things. Guess what? Our planet needs us to like start accomplishing some really, really important things. We have a lot of really, really important work to do in this world. Uh, yeah. And we need brilliant people and, and we need ingenuity and creativity. We need to accomplish some amazing things. But if, if you're led by your ego, then I think it just, it leads to, it doesn't lead to actual creativity. What it, it leads to some, some not so, and, and I think that's another great example where Donald Trump is just such a perfect example. It's, it's completely led by ego. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, we're not going to see a lot of innovation coming out of, uh, a, you know, a Donald Trump led organization, I don't think that's going to change the world. So 
Well, when you talk about the the serious challenges we face as a society, climate uh, being one of them, and just as a side note, I thought this was really interesting. I read The Guardian. It's a newspaper that comes out of the UK, and they're no longer calling it global warming. They're calling it global heating. And I kind of had a slightly like a jarring moment going, but I thought, yeah, let's call it what it is. You know, let's use the language around this. And you know, language is such a powerful lever of change, but it's also a powerful lever of the status quo, right? So, you know, mm. people who are going out on a limb to do incredible things to make the world more, you know, uh, <laughs> habitable for human and, and mammal and fauna and flora and green things and, and whatnot to, to grow are often labeled as activists, Right. Like they're, you know, it's like we're, we're bringing this land as opposed to I mean, to me, there's more more pacifism to it. Right. It's about finding peaceful way. I mean, yes, we have to be active in fighting some of the changes in the world. I'm not denying that. But we 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 use language to dismiss people, I think, at times when. Because it's an easy shortcut. And, you know, again, I think Trump is a, a bit of a master around that. But the one thing I, I did want to kind of shift us a little bit into talking about how this shows up in organizations. Mm -hmm. Like if we go back way back to the industrial, um, the time uh, of the industrial revolution, you know, there's the, a guy in the history of organizational development, the field I work in, uh, whose name, and I'm trying to remember his middle name, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Taylorism is a concept, mm -hmm. which, he, you know, you could think he was the first management consultant. He goes into a factory. He's trying to figure out how to get, you know, more things weaved, sewn, built, whatever, than the current rate of productivity. And so what he did was he brought uh, engineering principles into the management of factories. Now, his influence is still in place 100 plus years later, where we still treat people in organizations as though they are kind of moments or units of productivity, creating um, a physical thing and not the work that you and I and many others do, which is we create uh, content, we create value by virtue of the relationships we have, by virtue of the thinking and the creativity that we bring. And there, you know, we talk about revolution in the workplace, there are many levers to that revolution. But I think one of the critical ones is we need to get out of the business of thinking that people like you and I are somehow to be mined, right, to be excavated for uh, productivity, and then kind of ignored for all our other human capabilities, capacities, attributes. Mm -hmm. We seem to act in the workplace, even though human emotion is in every single other aspect of our lives, for instance, that it cannot be tolerated in the workplace. And that to me is something that I think needs to be revolutionized at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could easily talk a lot about humanizing the workplace and that's sort of a, another way of, of expressing, I think a lot of what you're saying. And, uh, and it came to me recently, when a friend we were talking about some things going on and and he he used the term yeah well it's a business you know that term well it's business it's just business and, and that term that really irked me you know because 
Well, what, what, what do you think it's shorthand for? I think that term means it's about the numbers. I think that's what it equates to. I think right. it's business means it's money. It's the bottom line. Ergo, any behavior goes or behaviors or that are not acceptable in some context. Ergo, are if people get trampled on, mistreated, it's business. It's an excuse. Right. I see it as an excuse because first of all, there's lots of place, different types of workplaces. Some of them are for profit and in a for-profit organization, nobody is denying the fact that you probably need to make money <laughs> to survive. It's a, it's, it's a very important element. Um, who's going to, who's going to make all that shit happen for you? Who's going to execute the strategy? Nothing is going to get done unless you're going to, you know, just completely, you know, AI, AI is not there yet. We still need people. So to try to somehow take people out of this equation, I think is so silly. But where's also the creativity and the ingenuity going to come from? It's going to come from people. Well, uh, it's people who create artificial intelligence. It's people who... Yeah you know, create the, I guess, the the robots that are being used all over the place, right? I mean, robots doing surgery. Um, yeah. There are some great benefits to automation and robotics, but you're right. I mean, the core of what has got us to where we are as a species is our deep humanity and our creativity and our ability to care yeah. for one another and to dismiss or to deny that to think that it's okay to be fully human everywhere, but except in the workplace, I just, I, I see such a loss to organizations. Now, I will make one caveat here. When I hear organizations say, we want you to bring your full self to work. Well, you know what? My full self, not everybody wants to see its fullness, right? There are things <laughs> that I am going to want to choose, right? Yes. You know, like my cranky, didn't sleep very well, need to get something. Like that self, if it's part of my full self, I'm not bringing to work. And I think it's just code, in a way it's code word, because we, we do use shortened versions of things is, you know, bring your humanity, bring your creativity, bring your ability to take risks. I think those are some of the things we're asking people to do. But I see a huge barrier in that we've created organizations where the culture is largely, even though we say fail fast, fail often, we don't see our leaders doing that. And unless I see somebody in a position of power willing to model the behaviors that are expected of me, it feels very vulnerable and scary to step into behaviors that frankly might get me fired. And mm -hmm. I would say have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't see that 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 those kinds of things modeled that you just described very often, um, and in fact, we see them uh, quite deliberately. I think curtailed and squashed in a lot of cases. I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story, and then we'll 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 look for a, a wrap up because <laughs> we you and I could talk all day. Um, I was talking to a client recently who. Um, was impacted by a restructure in his organization. And uh, 
prior to that, he had a new boss for about six months. But, the, you know, so this was definitely not a performance issue as as with most people that I work with. I feel like I always have to say that because people are just, there's still that little bit of a thing like, well, if they got fired, there was probably something wrong with them, but that's not the case. So this organization went through a pretty significant uh, restructure. And uh, he had had three bosses during his few years with the company, uh, one for a few years, one for six months, and then a call a colleague of his was promoted and he reported to her for the last six months. And um, he told me a, he, a really lovely person. Um, and without any real animosity, he told me about a couple experiences he'd had with this with this boss of his. And um, one of the things was that he he'd ha- he'd been having sort of a i guess a little bit of a mentoring relationship with one of the senior people in the organization they would occasionally go grab a coffee together they had a they had a connection a relationship and she said you can keep doing that but i want to know about it and i want to know a little summary of what you talked about that was this the one is thing. the the new boss this is the new boss him. said right. that to him he's like okay uh and so tried to play along with that. And then uh, another time she, she said to him something to the effect of, if you step out of your lane, you're going to know about it. Mm. So, you know, we want people to be, I mean, step out of your lane. I mean, and, and so this is the kind of thing that people are dealing with sometimes. And, and so, how demoralizing, how are you supposed to be motivated to even go to work and do your best work in circumstances like that? And, you know, I'm using a bit of an extreme example, but what I'm saying is that a lot of people are in organizations where, uh, and in positions where, you know, the idea of this idea of being able to be creative and, um, you know, agile and, you know, use their ingenuity they're, they're playing politics most of the time. They're just trying to get by, keep their nose clean, you know, not just fly below the radar, you know. And that's not a recipe for us to move forward as a society and make life better for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, you and many others are challenging what, what loss we incur by, you know, you, you talked uh, in, in one of your podcasts about the zombie apocalypse, right? Like the 70% of people <laughs> who go to work and are kind of on automatic pilot, not yeah. because they're not willing to give discretionary effort, but because every time they've tried, they've been shut down, they've been told they're a troublemaker. I mean, I have an instance, uh, brief, briefly, I'll share with you years ago, employee um, performance measures often go from exceeds expectations, meets them, doesn't meet them, and why the hell are you still here, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and I was repeatedly from the same leader, in spite of feeling I was giving my best effort, constantly at meet expectations. And so we had a conversation in a performance review, and I'm like, so what's it going to take for me to exceed expectations? Like, make it clear for me so that at least once in my career, I can, you know, meet that target, because I feel like I'm doing... And his response to me was, Lisa, I'll know it when I see it. And I can tell you that was one of the most demoralizing things I'd ever heard because it gave me no agency around working towards 
right? It was entirely subjective based on, and I'm like, well, what is it that you're going to like? And then I became, he was like, like, now you're just being troublesome as opposed to, no, actually you don't know how to lead and have a performance conversation that allows me to feel like I'm valued. But of course, saying that would get me, if not disciplined, possibly fired, right? So leaders need to get at some point that that kind of language is not going to be tolerated in this revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you know what, if if as a leader, you don't have an engaged team, um, you've either got the wrong people, you got the wrong people, you got, you got the wrong people in the wrong jobs, um, or you're not inspiring them because you get the right people in the right jobs and you inspire them and they will do great things. I truly believe that. I, I mean, if, if there's, yes, there's people out there who, you know, maybe they're too jaded or whatever, and they're not, they're not going to give as much. That's f- fine. But in my experience with working with, uh, with professionals, is they, they're just looking for a place where they can feel that engaged and they can be, you know, and, you know, given the leeway to, to be able to do it and feel that sense of connection and meaning and purpose, um, feel connected, you know, to the people and feel a sense of purpose and belonging with, with, you know, the organization and that the work they're doing is adding value and that it's important and that it's making a difference in some way you know, everybody wants to grow and the key to happiness, which now we're apparently happy employees are more productive at work. So, but the, the key to that is around learning, progressing and achieving. Those are the kinds of things that people want. Totally. You know, don't light a fire under me, light the fire within me. Right. And, you know, people laugh when I say this, but I think a lot of people can relate. Like when you're you're about to go on a holiday or take a vacation, like you feel this sense of anticipation and excitement because all these interesting things are about to happen to you. I believe it's possible to have that in regards to your job. And the fact that we don't have that says there's something seriously wrong with the way we've designed our workplace cultures, the way we've designed our leadership, you know, in organizations we can do a lot better. I'm not saying you bounce out of bed every day with your little suitcase ready to take on the world. But the fact that we TGIF our way through life and look forward to retirement is thinking I'll finally have time to myself and to express the things that are most important to me. I mean, look at how much we leave on the table where we could be contributing to making the world a far and the workplace, the world, both a far better place. What is it for you? So we'll end on that. And then I'll, I'll tell you mine, what I, what is it for you that, that, and maybe you could draw on an experience or just in general, talk about what is it for you that's happening at work where you feel that way, where you're like, yay, this is awesome. I'm loving this. I'm engaged. I, I, I feel, I feel good about this. What is it for you? Yeah. Great, great question. What, occurs to me at the top of my on the top of my head is that I'm given an opportunity to learn and grow as you just said a moment ago like if I can not have to have all the answers and be invited to experiment and test and figure like figure things out 
that is deeply inspiring to me. When I have a leader who says, this is kind of where I want you to get and go figure it out and bring whatever skills and talent like that, that, that really gets me out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. The other is that I have uh, good relationships at work. You know, when I know that the people I work with have my back and I have like that there's a sense of trust, that is hugely important to me. And what I look to when I'm an employee and have a leader is help me connect with other people. Give me the field to work in, make it clear what it is you expect from me. Give me a wide field to work in and help me have good relationships and good connections with people so that I can collaborate as fully as possible. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. It's very similar. Um, I love, I love new and novel ideas. I like to think about things. I like I like to I like to think big picture. I like to connect the dots in new and novel ways. I love ideas. I want to look at a business and go, how can we make this better? How can we street how can we either that do that better more efficiently or how can we do something better and be courageous about it? And what I love is to work with people who are like-minded and who you can just you just feel this synergy that happens when you're with them because you, you have the time and the space to really explore it. And then, and then just, yeah. and I love making change. I love it. Um, I, I, I actually don't like the status quo very much. I I've learned over the years. And, and so, um, you know, I, I find, I find that what's, what's been limiting is that when I've been gotten close to situations like that, there's there's always these there's like weird parameters around it or okay like we have you know or it's like okay well we have an hour and then we'll meet again in three months or you know it's just it's not conducive to it's not that conducive to what I've just described in most work environments I think um, but that's that's what I love and I love it when I'm involved I'm involved yeah. in things you know yeah belonging to me is a big one too yeah yeah. yeah. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you again so much for inviting me to speak with you. Love it. Thank you so much, Lisa. We'll talk again. We will talk again. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can follow Work Revolution on Instagram at work underscore revolution Or you can visit my website at www.workrevolution.ca. If you have questions or feedback for me, or want to find out more about the work I do, you can reach me at deborah at workrevolution.ca. Until next time. (laughs) 